Welcome. This was such a fun episode for me to, to put together. I had the, the pleasure of sitting with three terrific people, and we had a fantastic discussion. The whole thing lasted almost two hours, and uh, we were able to pare it down a little bit for broadcast. So I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I did putting it together. If you like the episode, please subscribe, click the like button. That really helps. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Astro Guy Podcast. I'm not an expert. I'm an amateur like you. I'm here to learn and here to teach. So let's enjoy the ride together. Carpe Noctum. Seize the night. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dennis Cassia, Richard Sanderson, and Phil Harrington, three amateurs who have each attended the Stellafane Convention an incredible 50 times. They shared their wealth of knowledge and experience with us, shedding light on the significance of this renowned gathering of amateur astronomers and telescope makers. On the panel, we have Dennis Cassia. Dennis is a retired fire chief and current fire instructor in Monroe, Connecticut. Dennis has been an active amateur astronomer for much of his life and has done a lot of astrophotography. He is a member of the Springfield Telescope Makers, the club that hosts and runs the Stellafane Convention. Dennis and his wife Kim run the Beginners Program at the convention. Also joining the discussion is Richard Sanderson. Richard is an astronomer with a lifelong commitment to astronomy education and popularization. He served as the Curator of Physical Sciences at the Springfield Museum in Springfield, Massachusetts for two decades before retiring in 2018. He now holds the title of Adjunct Curator at the museum. Richard is currently the president of the Springfield Stars Club and has written hundreds of articles on astronomy. Richard co-authored the book Illustrated Timeline of the Universe in 2006. In recognition of his contributions to astronomy education, an asteroid was named for him, Asteroid 6893 Sanderson. Richard attended his 50th convention in 2022, and along with Phil Harrington, created the Facebook group Stellafane Memories. Last but not least, we have Phil Harrington rounding out the panel. Phil is an accomplished author, engineer, college professor, and amateur astronomer. He's been an active participant in astronomy since witnessing the mesmerizing Good Friday total lunar eclipse of April 12, 1968. He currently serves as an adjunct professor at Suffolk Community College in New York, teaching courses in stellar and planetary astronomy. Phil is a founding member of the Westport Astronomical Society and is involved in organizing the annual Astronomers' Conjunction in Northfield, Massachusetts. He is also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. Phil has authored nine books, including Touring the Universe Through Binoculars, Starware, and Starwatch. His most recent publication, Cosmic Challenge, was published by Cambridge University Press. In recognition for Phil's remarkable contributions to amateur astronomy over more than five decades, Phil was honored 
with the prestigious 2018 Walter Scott Houston Award at the Stella Fane Convention. During the discussion, Dennis, Rich, and Phil shared valuable insights into their extensive experiences at Stella Fane. They shared their favorite moments, notable changes in the convention over the years, and the strong sense of community that Stella Fane fosters among its attendees. I want to extend my deepest gratitude to Dennis, Richard, and Phil for doing this episode and sharing their incredible experiences. Their profound insights and expertise have undoubtedly enriched our understanding of this renowned gathering and the significance it holds for amateur astronomers worldwide. Once again, be sure to connect with Richard and Phil on the Stellafane Memories Facebook group, where they continue to celebrate the convention's legacy and foster a community for Stellafane enthusiasts. Enjoy the episode. So I want to welcome three uh, very special uh, guests to the Astro Guy podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to me, and I know near and dear to them, uh, we're going to talk about Stellafan and the Stellafan Convention. And, uh, you know, my personal involvement with Stellafan goes back to my first convention was 1981, which you guys were veterans by then. Uh, but, you know, I, I've been going up there for a long time, and it's been a, a big part of my life and a big part of my family's life as well. So uh, how about we talk about how you first found out about Stellafan and, and when, what year you first attended? Uh, let's start with Dennis. All right. So... Uh... I had a buddy, his name was uh, Greg Assan, and we were both amateur astronomers down in the White Plains area. And every year he would say, come on, come on up to Stellafane with me. Of course, me being stubborn and thick, I, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. What is it? Well, it's a telescope maker's convention. Yeah, but I, bah, 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 bah. So finally, after a couple of years, I finally said, okay, Greg, I'm going to go. Now, according to my records, that was 19... Um, 71 or 72. So I technically consider my first 72 positively, but it could have been 71. And how about you, Richard? Well, back, back in the early 70s, I was working as a teenage planetarium lecturer at the Springfield Science Museum. And um, there was a, a bunch of teenagers like myself who were really into astronomy uh, working at the museum at the time and um I, i'm not sure who found out but one of one of them found out about this event in springfield vermont and it turned out the director frank corcus who had built the planetarium and at the springfield science museum went went every year so he knew all about it and told us about this amazing event every year called stellafane and this was um 1971 so i was 16 years old and fortunately i heard about Stellafane at that youthful age because um, it got me up there early in my life and allowed me to to reach 50 Stellafanes last year. But but that first that first Stellafane in 1971, it was the Russell Porter centennial year at Stellafane. And there was a lot of uh, memorabilia and presentations about Russell Porter. And it was just there was just something magical about it. You know, it was just an amazing place. The telescopes, meeting these celebrities like Walter Scott Houston. And it, it just, something resonated in me. And I said, you know, I'm never going to miss a Stellafane if I can help it. And that's that thread has continued through my life. Very relatable. And how about you, Bill? Yeah, my, my first Stellafane, I beat these two guys, uh, was 1969. And uh, I was 13 years old at the time. 
uh, in February of that year, I began my subscription to Sky and Telescope. And the March issue, I remember distinctly, uh, there was there was always a column in Sky and Tele back then called the Amateur Astronomers. And I always went to that almost immediately. That was just my, my interest. And it featured conventions coming up, one of which, most of which were nowhere near here, but one of which was up in Springfield, Vermont. And so I read about it, and I thought, that sounds really interesting. Well, I lived in Connecticut, Norwalk, Connecticut at the time, and we often vacationed either in New Hampshire or Maine, and now and then into Vermont also. So I convinced my, my unsuspecting parents to, to drag me and my younger brother up to Springfield, Vermont. We stayed in the Howard Johnson's, which is now, what, Best Western or whatever it is it's evolved into. We stayed there, and uh, my mom, because uh, I was only 13, my mom drove me up there while my father and uh, younger brother stayed, stayed back at the hotel. And uh, we spent the afternoon up there, then came back up at night as well. And of course, back then you had the old camping field and you had the old parking lot. And, but you still had to make that really harrowing trip up to the summit. By harrowing, I mean, there were no lights. And we didn't know that. And so we had to sort of feel our way up that trail and then feel our way back down the trail and try to find the car all with no, no flashlights. So that was sort of an interesting experience. Um, but that was my, my first exposure was, was uh, the 1969 convention, the 35th uh, convention, I believe it was. My home club, where I grew up three blocks away from it, was the same club that Roger Tuthill was a member of. And, uh, and Phil, I think that's actually where you and I first met. Uh, back in Cranford, probably thirty some odd years ago, uh, but it was there were so many people there that were going up to Stella Fame when I was just a little kid, and I remember reading about it and seeing it in Sky Telescope magazine. And when I was old enough to go, I went with I, I don't know if you guys remember Irv Price, but uh, Irv drove me and another friend of mine. We were both fourteen or fifteen, I think, at the time, and he drove us up there and. Uh, and it was amazing, but not not very different from you guys. But I had read about it for years, and, and it was a lot of anticipation. So I know one of the, the big things, and I know certainly this uh, resonates with Dennis and I because we are, we are friends, and we're, we're both uh, members of, of the Springfield Telescope Makers. But a, a big thing that I hear from people all the time about Stellafan is they come back not just for the telescopes or the sky or the, the, the speakers, but for the friends, because they make friends there, and it kind of becomes a yearly thing. Absolutely. In fact, I just um, uh, wrote an article on uh, the STM's 100th uh, anniversary or birthday, if you will, that'll appear uh, this summer in Astronomy Magazine. And that's how I summed it up at the very end. Uh, I, I asked sort of a rhetorical question, why, why do we keep going back here? And is it because of the dark skies? Sure. Is it because of the telescopes? Sure. Is it because of the swap meet? Sure. Hearing talks and so forth. But the bottom line, really, um, the reason I like to go back, the people. The people my, my wife, whose first telephone was 1981, she refers to me as the mayor of telephone because I always walk around and I say hello to everybody. And people say <laughs> hello to me. And you, you kind of get to know people. It's like a big family reunion every year. You don't necessarily keep in touch with them during the year, although now with social media, that's you know a little more likely that you can. But you see people that you maybe didn't see for for a full year, or possibly even more than that, depending on circumstances. And and that's really one of the main drivers for me anyway is getting to see people like Rich all the time 
and and Dennis obviously also and you, and I mean I could just list people from Hartford, from from uh, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, from Albany, from all of Pennsylvania, all over the place, and it's just wonderful to see people. It's amazing how old you all look, but uh, versus me, but uh, it's it's just it's just a, an amazing human experience. Naturally, the key for cellophane, and at the same time, understanding that you're walking in the shadow of giants. You know, I my virtual background over here showing the pink clubhouse. Think of all that that has happened either inside or directly adjacent to that clubhouse since it was first constructed. It really is amazing. That, uh, I always every every year I go, the last thing I do before I leave on that Sunday morning is to walk up to the pink clubhouse because I find it a, a very spiritual event. You know, because I think about how I've changed. And how the world has changed since I first saw it in 1969, and yet it's the same. You know, there, there's some co consistency here where everything else is evolving, but there's consistency here. And again, part of that is the spirit of Russell Porter and Ingalls and the rest of them, who and Rich mentioned. You know, you mentioned Roger Tuthill, Scotty Houston, and so forth. It's their spirit, I think, also that pulls me in every year as well. Where I grew up is about five or six blocks away from where Al Ingalls lived. Uh, I know that Porter actually had referred to coming to to visit Ingalls at the house. And they would sit by the river and smoke cigars and and listen to records on a on a phonograph player. So that that's that's kind of cool. You mentioned him. So let's go to Dennis next. I'm sorry. Well, there's no question at all that the camaraderie is a major driving force at Stellafane. Where else can you go? around the world where all these people are going to come to one location and you know intrinsically they're there for the hobby now they don't have to be a telescope maker they might be an amateur astronomer or a photographer but you automatically know that everybody there they're there for that various reasons and you know Wayne you just reminded me of something my first telephone uh in the old days, folks, we had to we had to read books if we wanted to learn about telescopes. So there were a bunch of books that used to come out, and you would see names of people. And Wayne, you reminded me the first telephone. I got to meet Ralph Dakin and Dr. Henry Paul and George Keene. These people, these people were gods to me. And I actually got to meet them and shake hands with them. So, of course, Rich and Phil and a bunch of people that I love to see, you know, every year. Uh, and also, what's really interesting I found is that even the guest speakers that come up, they have a different attitude. Now, Wayne, you brought the meteorite men up there. I'm friends on social media with Jeff Notkin and Steve Arnold to this day. In fact, I just talked to Jeff about a week ago on the phone. We talk once a year. That's what happens when you're at Stellafane, and that's what happens when you meet uh, people who are the same cut of cloth as you are. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Richard, your, your take on that? Well, I, I think there's something magical about being around a bunch of people of different 
levels of experience, different ages, uh, different backgrounds, but all sharing the same passion. And, and it's, it's about passion. You know, people that, that are passionate about astronomy and about telescope making are driven to, to visit places like Stellafane so that they can interact with others. And I've always said that amateur astronomy is as much about people as it is about stars and galaxies and eclipses and planets. Um, because it's people's interaction with the universe. Astronomy is that interaction, and, and human beings are an essential part. And here we're going up to Stellafane every year to interact with both the universe and the people that love the universe and the people that build instruments to, to see the universe close up. And so it's been such a, such a treasure to go up to Stellafane every year and meet people like like Phil and Dennis and, and many others who I, I never would have become friends with if it weren't for Stellafane. And those friendships are such a precious part of my life. I just can't imagine not having Stellafane in my life. Not, not just the annual convention, but, but, but all the friendships and all the experiences and all, all the passion that, that I've gained, the inspiration from people who are making telescopes that I could never make and then never would try, but I, I love admiring them. I love talking to those folks. And, and you mentioned George Keene. He was, this was one of the first books I ever bought at Johnson's Bookstore in Springfield, Massachusetts, back when I was about 16 years old. And, and I go up to Stellafane and, wow, George Keene, I've got his book at home. You know, you're walking around with his, his uh, cowboy hat with a feather sticking out of it. and and um, presiding over the afternoon talks in the tent behind the pink clubhouse in those days and and getting to talk to uh, people like Dennis DeChico and Scotty Houston and you know so so you were interacting you know with with the luminaries in the field which you know which w was an incentive to many people but you were also making friends and and maybe even uh, helping beginners out, young people that are getting into the hobby. And, you know, we all started out being the novices, you know, the uh, walking around in wonder at all these uh, celebrities and all these um, people that knew all about telescopes and astronomy. And in those days, you know, when we were teenagers and now the rules have changed and, and we're kind of uh, trying to, uh, usher the newer generations in, into astronomy and telescope making and, and, and provide uh, role models for these um, young people to get, enter into the hobby. Something that, that's come out in the last few years, I think really think since the, the pandemic hit, is amateur astronomy is growing again. And, and that's a terrific thing. Uh, I think people in the, the isolation, they were like, well, what am I going to do? And, and they've gone out and, and the hobby, because of technology and everything else, obviously the hobby's changed. Uh, but uh, I want to kind of touch on uh, the people. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of people I know, they, they, their year is based on Stellafane. So that, that's the, they, they count years based on Stellafane. Dennis, you're nodding your head. I know you know this. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, when you go up there and you, build this network of friends and, and people 
Um, how has that changed your experiences or affected your experiences in the hobby of astronomy and related pursuits, even going into the professional side of things? All right, let's start with Phil. Well, gee, um, let's see. Uh, obviously, uh, being involved at Stellafane got me much more involved with, with the hobby of, of amateur astronomy. And getting to see, like Rich and, and Dennis have said, some of the, the notable names back then. I mean, for me, Rich mentioned George Keane, for instance, and, and such. For me, it was Walter Scott Houston. I mean, I idolized that man as, as a kid, right? 13, 14, 15-year-old kid. I idolized him because there, there he was. You know, it wasn't just a name on a piece of paper in a magazine I got every month. But And, and I was always into deep sky observing even even back then and and to actually see the man and ultimately get to know him was was really quite amazing i'll, I'll tell one quick story about about that it's not really answering your question but <clears throat> that's okay i'm going off on a, on a bit of a tangent here right um, there go off on a tangent okay good uh you see right behind me over here let's see this right right about where my finger is against the wall the retaining wall over there i was sitting there with a friend of mine this had to be about 19, uh, let me think, 1974, because that was one of the clearest years I've ever been there. And we were sitting on that, on that wall, I don't know, maybe 12 midnight, 1 a.m., I don't know, something like that. And we were just, no telescopes, no binoculars, just looking, looking up at the sky, amazed uh, at what we could see. And I said to, to my friend, I said, you know, right over there, and I pointed up, I said, I think I could see M33, the Triangulum Galaxy. I think I can see a naked eye. And he says, ah, oh, you know what you're talking about. You know, you're, you're seeing things, whatever. I said, no, I said, I can see right over there. There's the apex of triangulum. And I go over here and it's in, you know, it's over toward Almac over there in Andromeda. That's it, right? I'm, I'm definitely seeing it. No, 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 no. Anyway, so we're going back and forth about this. And apparently we were loud enough because all of a sudden out of the darkness, because he was walking up into the clubhouse, comes Walter Scott Houston with the corn cop pipe and the whole thing. And he had to, he obviously had to hurt up, hurt us. Uh, and um, he said, you boys see M33 up there? Yeah, it's, it's right over there. He points to it. And then he walks, walks away just like that. I was vindicated. Walter Scott Houston vindicated me. That was wonderful. That was really my first personal encounter with him. And it's something that obviously I remember to this day, even though it was, it was, you know, 40 years ago. And, um, so it's it's that sort of thing that pulls me deeper into into astronomy, and it's really because of him singularly that I want to get into writing, and ultimately that evolved uh, evolved into where I am now with Astronomy Magazine doing the Binocular Universe column uh, every month. But he was really, and through no fault of his own or no help of his own, really, but he just inspired me uh, to do that. So in that sense, yeah, that 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 one encounter that sort of started the whole thing has kind of directed a good part of my life, even to this day. And for a very long time, he did the, the Shadowgram talk, which was uh, the talk that was given while you were waiting for the, the sky to get dark enough so you could see the main speaker's slides. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long or when he started doing it, but I know he did it right up until the, the early 90s when he passed away. And it was always one of my favorite parts of the entire weekend was listening to him because it wasn't a, a it was almost never a really astronomy focused talk it was there, there was astronomy in it and 
observing and telescope making, but for the most part, it was about people. He talked about people and the connections people had with each other and what they could do with those connections. And, and so I totally relate to that. I think that's, that's awesome. Dennis, how about you? How about your network of people and how that's affect your, your uh, uh, pursuit in the hobby? Well, going, going back to when I was uh, first started and was really, really, really involved in it, we're going back to like 1966, 67. And I think I was probably the only crazy guy in my whole town who had a big telescope and would go out in the middle of the night and get up at three o'clock in the morning to look at stuff in the sky. So I never knew anybody personally who did that. There wasn't a club close to my house. And again, we didn't have social media. So that was it. I only had my one friend, uh, Greg. And then uh, we went to Stellafane. Of course, when we went to Stellafane, that's when I met people. Talk about networking. The fact that I went to Stellafane when I did is when I got to meet with Roger Tothill. And it was because of that meeting that I went to Africa on Tothill's eclipse trip into the uh, Sahara Desert. So very quick turnaround to uh, networking with people, even though you only saw them once a year. So then again, that, that drove me more. Well, I got to go back now every year because I'm not going to interact with these people because we don't have any way of communicating. Well, for, for me, I've always um, thought about Stellafane and the experience of going up there. It almost feels like recharging a battery. You know, when you go up to do something like that, and, you know, it's, it's all well and good to practice amateur astronomy from your own backyard and to read magazines and books and what have you. But it adds another dimension. When you do something like attend Stellafane every year, you become part of a community. You, in, in reality, it's a family. I mean, you become part of a family. And, and it's just so, it's so valuable. It's so rewarding. It's so inspiring to be embraced by that family. You're, you're not looking at astronomy from afar, but you're part of it, you're embraced by it. And that's the feeling I get at Stellafane. It's like the year when, when Stellafane was canceled recently because of COVID. So we waited two years and then went back to Stellafane and I felt like I was coming home from a long trip. I mean, Stellafane is my home. And in many ways it is because it's it's something that a thread that goes back to my childhood. It's a constant, like Phil said, a, a, a constant that's, you know, as, as the world changes and life changes and telescopes change, things in the sky happen, they come and go, but but lots of stellophane remains the same, the tradition, the pink clubhouse, you know, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the sisterhood. It just stays, you know, it stays the same every year and it's just, it's worth its weight in gold. And I, that kind of leads into my next question, which was what keeps bringing you back year after year. And, and I think in a way we've kind of answered that, but um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that for all of you, the, the most important part of it isn't really the sky or the, the speakers. It's more the friendships than anything. Is that correct? I would say for me it is absolutely because especially with with one or two people who uh we used to live close to each other in fact one fellow i used to work with so i saw him every day every day for several years 
And then through a, a various circumstances, uh, I left the job and took another one. He moved away, and uh, now he lives outside of Atlanta, whereas here I am on Long Island. And while we used to see each other, every, we became very, very good friends. In fact, I'm the one who, who dragged him up to Stellafane to begin with back in the, the mid-'80s. Uh, but um, so I only see him now once a year. And I mean, we always just hug each other, you know, and uh, because this has brought us together again. So, you know, and that, that's what the other guys were saying here. Also, it's, it's the people that you go to see. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's guys in the form of the nighttime sky, the homemade telescopes, the talks, the swap meet, you know, swap area and so forth. But it's the people that I really go go to see. And some people in particular, and then other people more more in general. I, I, do you think that sums it up for you, Dennis and, and Richard? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess what I would say is it's the people against the backdrop of the universe and against the backdrop of the wonderful history up there at Stellafane and the backdrop of the beautiful scenery. But it's uh, primarily me, the people. But, but it's... Get, but it's sorry, everything, everything combined. It, it's a magical recipe, base, basically, which you can't replicate. If you remove any of those ingredients, it wouldn't be the same. But can I just inter interject real quickly, talking again about the people? Rich has done something which I think nobody else has, to my knowledge, including me, and I always say I'm going to and I never do. But he goes around photographing those individual people every year up there. And while I'm there taking pictures of telescopes, He's taking pictures of the people. And, you know, that, I think that's a wonderful um, way of, of memorializing, is not the right word, but to, to reflect on the, the true spirit of Stalfane, he's capturing it in those images. And I keep, I keep threatening, I'm going to follow him around every year, taking the exact same picture he takes. <laughs> I never do, because he's, he's, he's much faster than I am. But... Uh, I think that's just a, a wonderful, wonderful way to to capture every Stalafane convention is to go around and just take pictures of people. You may not know them all, but it's just a, a nice thing to do. And and when you do that, when you get right up close to somebody's face, you can see the excitement in their eyes. Here's somebody that loves astronomy and they're in an astronomical paradise, and you can see the excitement in their eyes that they're having the time of their life. And that's what I love to capture, the same excitement that I feel. Yeah, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I, I know that there's people there that, uh, I know Dennis and I know some people, uh, like Melinda Callis, for example. Uh, you know, seeing her son coming up there as an infant, and, you know, now he's in his 20s, uh, and, you know, the, the, but there's so many people like that, that, you know, you've seen kids grow up. And, you know, I think of people that I met when, when I was there my first year that I'm still friends with because, and people that I met while I was there, people that don't even live in this country or at the time didn't, but now they do. But that's, that's a, a different story. But uh, so one of the things that I want to touch on is, I don't know, Phil, you said your first convention was in the, in the late 60s, and uh, Dennis and Rich was the early 70s, and for me, it was the 80s. Um, but the convention has certainly changed a lot uh, over the years. And uh, I remember hearing stories about what things were like in the 70s and uh, in the early 80s. I remember 
It was a, a, the the vibe was a little different, uh, and it was a much even though I think there was probably more people, it was a much more intimate gathering than it is now. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that, how it's changed over the years. So, um, Dennis, you want to start us off on that? The campsite was at what we call Miller's Field, and that was a place where uh, a farmer uh, used to allow us to park there, and that was the field. And you accessed Stellafane not through Jordan Road like we do now, but there was a back road that you went up, and you want to talk about a, a very narrow road that you had to navigate up. That was one heck, certainly wasn't maintained very well. Then you came up to the top of the hill. The only water that was there was in a, a, a tank in the back of the truck. And everybody was close in those days because Miller's Field was only four or five acres. So when you camp there, you camp there uh, together. In fact, in the old days, we would sit around and we would wait for the notice that the camping permits were being issued. And in those days, you dropped everything, you ran to the post office, <laughs> put in your $5 special delivery that day because they were limited and first come, first serve. So that was a big difference. All those things were a big difference. And we were also closer to the Pink Clubhouse and the original Stellafane location. The difference now is we have a humongous area. Anybody can camp. There are no limits to the number of people. The only disadvantage is uh, a lot of people tend to stay at uh, Stellafane East and they don't go to Stellafane West. So there, there are significant differences. But in the old days, it was much smaller and much more compact. Yeah, I, I echo what Dennis said. I mean, the, the layout of Stellafane, I mean, the, the, the addition of Stellafane East was a huge evolutionary spurt in the history of Stellafane that completely changed the, the complexion of the convention. And in the early days, fewer people went, but it was really condensed to the, the summit of Breezy Hill and the, the campground, basically, the, the hay field, Miller's Field. And um, there was a big tent behind the clubhouse. So while people were looking at telescopes along the slope in the front of the pink clubhouse, Behind the clubhouse was a tent that had the, the food concession, and behind that, an even bigger tent where talks were being held. And um, boy, there's some, I have some fond memories of amazing people and, and presentations that I saw under that tent. And of course, uh, part of the charm of Stellafane was when it rains, you had about a 50% chance of having water dripping on you under that tent. But hey, that was part of the Stellafane experience. And, uh, and, um, you know, we gave it different rains, like uh, names like Stella Rain or Stella Flood some of those years. But, uh, you know, n nobody would even dream of missing it, whether it's going to rain or shine. You still wanted to be up there. And, uh, and so in, in those days, it was sort of more intimate, you know, smaller group. But, but the, the slope in front of the clubhouse at night, especially Saturday night, was just amazing all those telescopes in that tiny area with the owners standing there and people milling around looking through them and waiting in line through some of the bigger 
ones and, and climbing up ladders to reach the eyepiece and, and just the, the noise of, of, of people, you know, ha having fun and, and, you know, exclaiming when they look through an eyepiece and see the Whirlpool Galaxy or the Ring Nebula in those beautiful skies, you know, through a giant telescope. It was just a, it was a different type of uh, feeling than it is now. No, no, not better, not worse, just different. You know, I, I love the early Stellafane of the 70s, I, and I love Stellafane now. You know, it's such a beautiful property now with an expansive campground and multiple observing areas and permanent observatories. I mean, it's just beautiful. But, but that historic Stellafane, I mean, I, every time I go up there and I sit on the wall that Phil mentioned, it's just hard to believe that a 16-year-old a version of me sat on that wall once a lifetime ago. Again, it's the connections that Stellafane creates through your lifetime. And how about you, Phil, about the way the conventions change? Yeah, sure. No, the, the first four years I went up, 1969 to 1972, um, I stayed off-site. Okay, but uh, starting in, in 1973, I, I camped. A friend of mine from high school drove up, and we, in his, in his Volkswagen Beetle, his father's Volkswagen Beetle, and we had a couple of tents and uh, set them up and, and so forth in, in Miller's Field. Now, Miller's Field, of course, and you can still see it today as you walk the road from, from the, the summit down to Stellafane East, you know the, the road itself, the path you goes down and then goes up again. Well, we camped that year in the gully. And I don't know why we did that, but we camped in the gully. And um, we discovered that uh, topography makes a, a big difference when it comes to water in your tent. And it did rain one of those nights. And sure enough, you know, I, I discovered what that was all about. And then, of course, a few years later, still in the old camping field, we had Stella Flood. I think it was 1976, if I remember, or Stella Rain, whatever you want to call it. And it turned into Stella Mud very quickly uh, hmm. because we had to help people with these big old behemoth rear-wheel drive cars trying to get them out. And a friend of mine who subsequently became a professional astronomer uh, was just covered with hay and mud and everything. I was trying to get somebody else's uh, Plymouth satellite out of the the gully. So that that was interesting experiences there that we don't always have these days in Stellafane East. But like uh, the other guys were saying, the closeness, the crowdedness of uh, the old campground uh, in some ways made it much more challenging, but at the same time also made it a little more personal because the one, the one thing that uh, Stellafane East, for all its size, all these little nooks and crannies where people are camping these days, it is possible to miss people altogether the entire weekend. Even though you know they're there, unless you have a cell phone number, and of course, the odds of you having a signal up there is not, not terribly good. But uh, unless you somehow could bump into them, you're not going to see them necessarily. I was looking for a friend of mine last year who I've known since high school, and he hasn't been up to Stalfane in, in quite a while, and we just missed each other entirely. So, you know, that that's one, um, I don't know if I should use the word drawback, because like Rich said, it's a different complexion to the convention these days. It's wonderful. Stalfane East, you couldn't have dreamt of that back in the 70s. Uh, with just this this huge open open area but it does make finding individual people a bit of a challenge also if you're trying to do that so i want to uh, kind of get into memorable experiences and i'll, I'll share a, 
just a couple of real quick ones uh, that I have. One of them was not during the convention. It was actually, a, a, I think it was 2002. Um, was it October or November 2002? Um, it was the year we had the Leonid meteor storm. And uh, I was up there. It was a, a regular club meeting that night. And uh, we had, uh, was it Dan Barry? Was that the guy's name, Dennis, the astronaut? He was on he was on Survivor a couple of years later, but he was a shuttle astronaut that lived, I think, in Connecticut or Massachusetts. And he asked us if he could come up there to watch the meteor shower. And he did, and we got to hang out with him and and talk all night. And he was he was really interesting, but that meteor shower was just incredible. One of the most unbelievable things I've ever experienced in my life. And I remember as as it was getting light out, seeing meteors, looking through I was with with a friend of mine in his in his truck. I was with Slack, and uh, looking through the the sunroof in his truck as we're driving down to to Dunkin' Donuts to get coffee. You could still see him as it was getting light out. It was just really amazing. And then you know, I think it was a month earlier we had a, a fantastic aurora that was visible right up to the zenith. And not obviously neither of those were during the convention. But how about you guys? Um, some me a specific memorable experience well one of mine uh for experiences that happened during the convention was in 1973 um it was my third convention and, and on saturday evening of course you know the main day of the convention's over and, and we're all busy observing and photographing the heavens on saturday evening I think it was right after midnight. It was early Sunday morning, the wee hours of the morning. Um, I was taking star trail pictures, you know, trying to capture some Perseid meteors and I reloading film. So I was sort of squatting down between the tents and cars and reloading film into my camera. And all of a sudden I thought somebody turned their car headlights on me. I could see my shadow extending across the ground with this bright light illuminating everything around me. And, you know, I was, a, I was a little irked that somebody would turn their lights on me while I'm loading film. And I stood up and I realized it wasn't a car headlight. I could see the shadows moving and I could see the whole campground and I could see the mountains illuminated in the, in the distance. And I turned around and in the north there was a, a bright light. It looked like somebody had launched a flare, this brilliant light descending toward the tree line and behind the trees. And, and, and people were like, shouting and screaming and clapping you know and people said what was that what was that you know and a rumor went around that somebody must must have launched a flare or had a flare gun or something it was so bright but it turned out it was a fireball an actual fireball a piece of cosmic debris burning in the atmosphere in the northern sky and it was um walter scott houston was one of the ones who observed it and filed a report on it and the estimate was minus 16th magnitude, minus 16th magnitude. And, and the remarkable thing was as the fireball moved, you could see the shadows moving on the ground. And it was just something I'll never forget. To this day, it's the brightest fireball I've ever seen in my life. How about you, Phil? I have two, actually, both of which involve auroras. Okay. The first was 1982. It was my wife's second year. Uh, up there with me and um uh, we were we decided it didn't take place at stellar directly okay so 
I'll, I'll preface that because it took place Sunday night, but the Sunday night after the convention. And we decided to stay over a night or two more, but we, we didn't stay at, at the summit uh, or Cellophane East or wherever. Instead, we um, went to Crown Point Camping Area up in Perkinsville, okay, which is just, that's where we used to always go. Anyway, uh, so we're up there. And uh, as we were driving back to the campground from having dinner down, down in town, I looked off in the north and I could see a glow. And I remember saying to my wife, I said, I said, they have light pollution up there? You know, what is that? And then I realized the closest thing is White River Junction. And that's still a, a pretty good distance away. So I thought, that can't be right. And uh, anyway, long story short, it, that glow uh, evolved into the most spectacular display of the aurora I had ever seen and have ever seen. We, we had to go from the campground. Crown Point has all these tall, tall trees. So we went to Crown Point Cemetery which is directly adjacent to the current campground. There are no, no sizable trees there. And we just laid between the stones <laughs> and just watched the entire sky. The sky took on a, a fluid sense that I've never seen before with these waves just rippling through the sky. It was astonishing. I mean, I didn't try to take any pictures or do any, anything silly like that. I just looked at it. And, you know, the old saying, that's a Kodak moment. And that's still a Kodak <laughs> moment for me. That was just the most spectacular thing I've ever seen, we've ever seen uh, in, our, in our lives. And you look directly at the scenes, and here's the corona of the aurora coming down at you. You're looking right along the, the magnetic lines as it's coming toward you. It was astonishing. I, like I said, I've never seen anything like that again. But to story number two, later in the 80s, late 80s, maybe even the early 90s, I don't remember, a buddy of mine and I, the one who I mentioned has since moved to Atlanta, and we see each other once a year up in cellophane, he and I were into <laughs> photography. Okay? And, of course, back then it was all film. So we happened to have our cameras uh, loaded with Ectochrome 400, probably. And our Aurora started up on, I think it was Saturday night, if I remember. And I don't remember the exact year. Richard Dennis, you may recall it. But uh, we, we immediately set out to take photographs. So we go up to the summit because we want to have a nice view of the the um, um, pink clubhouse in the foreground, maybe, or the turret telescope, whatever. And we're taking all these pictures, and we thought, wow, we've done great. This is astonishing. We were just congratulating ourselves left and right, doing such a great job. Well, it was film. So, of course, you had to send it out for processing. We send it out for processing. We both did the exact same thing. Now, we both knew how to photograph the aurora. We did the exact same thing in our excitement. We focused it, the lens to infinity, but we, each of us, without knowing the other one had done this, stopped the lens down to F22, and we uh. didn't record a thing. <laughs> so that was memorable also, and, if, and we still laugh about it today. But <laughs> you, never, you never know. But uh, that was at Stellafane, so that's another memorable, exper memorable experience for me there. Well, uh, well speaking of the 1972 Aurora that you mentioned, I. I saw that from the Stellafane campground as well. And I remember, you know, sitting out and there were, you know, a bunch of people watching it in lawn chairs and just, you know, just quietly watching this beautiful display, a performance, a cosmic performance decorating the heavens. And, you know, little by little people went to bed and, you know, eventually I, it must've been like two or three o'clock in the morning. I figured most people were asleep, but boy, was I wrong. I'm watching the aurora, and it was sort of a greenish white color throughout most of it. But all of a sudden, it turned brilliant red, 
ruby red for like about 30 seconds. And that field erupted. It, it was like a, a rock concert. It was like when the Beatles came on the stage and the audience went crazy. That camping field just went crazy. I said, wow, everybody's up. They're up all night long watching this Northern Lights. I thought, I, you know, maybe a dozen people were still up at that hour, but everybody was up. And then if, if they were asleep and they weren't after that, <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. How about you, Dennis? You have a, a memorable uh, convention moment for us? I, I actually have two. Uh, one goes way back to the <clears throat> second convention I believe I was at. I remember we were up at the Pink Clubhouse, and we were, again, sitting on the stone wall, and there was a gentleman next to me. And it was, it was late now. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever, and I'm looking up, and I happened to ask him, you know, do you know where uh, whatever M33 is? So he takes out his binoculars and he points it out to me and I get to watch it and I see it. And we spent the entire night until the uh, morning glow came up. And this man, I wish I could remember his name, but he showed me almost every object I ever heard about, some of which I couldn't even find yet with my own telescope. And what, what sets this whole thing apart was, Wayne, you may remember this, he uh, he slept in a hearst. He had a he had a coffin in the back of his hearst, and he climbs in there and he goes to sleep in the morning. And uh, I wow, you know, <laughs> all kinds. The second thing, <laughs> the second most memorable thing for me, it has nothing to do with astronomy, but uh, we had uh, astronaut Alan Bean as one of our guest speakers. And on Friday night, we had a uh, special dinner to uh, help pay for uh, astronaut Bean. And of course, my wife, Kim, had to open her mouth and get involved with running it. So I got suckered into it. And turns out we ended up working so much that we never actually got to meet Alan Bean. And because of that, Gary Sislak, Slack as you call him, invited us to lunch so we went down to friendlies in springfield vermont and sat there with alan bean and had lunch in a friendlies and all he wanted to talk about was my job as being a firefighter and all i wanted to talk about was his job as being an astronaut so we ended up talking about dogs the wives love dogs <laughs> football and life and after it was over we paid the check and uh, this waitress comes over and said, you have any idea who that elderly gentleman is? She goes, no, but he seemed like a nice guy. That's Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do that? To me, that's the most memorable uh, non-astronomical event. And, you know, I remember I, I was there with my wife and kids. We were in the friendlies. It's just dumb luck we ended up and we were right at the next table so that was a lot of fun and, and if i remember he wanted to talk about fishing more than anything <laughs> uh so so dennis and i want to have you start with this because one of the things that you you've done uh, at convention for for many years now is you and your wife do the beginner talks for people who've never been there um so i want to talk about as seasoned attendees what advice would you give someone uh, who's attending the Stellafane convention for the first time 
and we'll start uh, with Dennis. If you're coming for the first time, there are a couple of things you need to think about before you get up there. First, may I suggest you read, go on the website and read all of the rules, all the regulations, all of the times to arrive, et cetera, and so on, so that you don't have a problem with that. Uh, second, realize that we do have camping, but we don't really have camping facilities. So you don't have a campsite that's got electrical hookups or water. You have a space on a mountaintop. There are two places you can get water. I don't know if I drink it or not. And there is a shower that may or may not be heated. But other than that, uh, you don't have anything there. Uh, if you want to get food, you can buy it. So you really need to understand if you're going to come and camp, you're going to camp. I'd also recommend you come and see our program introduction to Stellafane because we tell you where to go and what to do and where to get everything. But I think uh, one of the big problems, Wayne, we have, because my wife Kim and I are at the gate, is that uh, people try to sneak in early and you don't sneak in early. And we've uh, expanded the camping nights to Thursday night so you can pay an extra 10 bucks and if you really want to come thursday there are no activities thursday but if you want to come and set up your your campsite you may but you can't get in prior to four o'clock and every year we have 15 or 20 people that come they come up at a quarter to four can we get in no and we turn you around you can't wait online we turn you around and send you down because on that day we have the big campers coming up and people don't realize they take up a lot of space so we don't open until four because the barriers are not in place for cars until john martin gets them in place and that's usually four o'clock so that's that's why you can't get in early so just check those times and uh be ready to rough it up a little bit and how about, how about you, Phil? What would you recommend to people attending for the first time? I think what, what I always do, because it's almost like I attend cellophane for the first time every time I go, and that is to, once you, once you get settled, whether or not you're camping or just going to be a, staying there for the day and then going off-site at night for, for lodging, is uh, you park wherever it is and you walk around. And Thursday is wonderful for that. Right? You walk around and you just, try to take in as much as you possibly can uh, now it is rugged terrain as dennis said uh you want to get in your steps and so forth to go discover how lousy shape you're really in and you didn't think you were but because uh, you will you know i mean i'm a runner and a cyclist and i i work up uh, a real sweat just going up the hill uh, to where i typically camp the other side of of the uh, mcgregor observatory but you want to walk around and it's it's then that you see other people setting up and so on and just talk to them you know maybe give them a hand setting up their tent you know and, and so forth but just get to know people that's all and uh if you possibly can also on thursday go up to the pink clubhouse to the summit and just walk around and consider where you are you're on hallowed ground and i i think that even before you you really have to do a pretest um even before you get there is read the history of cellophane on the website which is just wonderfully detailed 
wonderfully detailed. Read, understand where you're going. It's not just a weekend up in Vermont looking at stars. That's not what it, if that's what you're looking for only, you're going to be really disappointed. But if you go up understanding where you are and appreciating where you are, you'll be back again, probably 50 times. And or 51 is it's going to be for us this year, God willing. Mm -hmm. But um, but again, you you have to, I said before, you have to understand the spirit of Stella Fane. So read as much as you can before and then just walk around and and it'll pull you in. It, it as it has with us for well, 50 years. How, how about you, Richard? The, the heart and soul of Stella Fane, of course, is the telescope makers competition. Um with ribbons awarded for, for homemade telescopes. And, and that's a tradition that's been going on since long before I started going. So some people, you know, might, might be wary about going up there not having made a telescope. But one thing about amateur astronomers is that those with telescopes are the vast majority of them are always more than willing to share the view through their eyepiece. You can hang out for a while and as they go from object to object, they love having you look through their telescopes. You can bring a telescope, that's great, but if you don't have one, don't let that keep you from going. You don't need a telescope to have a good time at Stellafane. There's plenty of optics up there. So either bring one or don't bring one, but I, I wouldn't be concerned about going up there without one. I brought one um, some years and most years I don't bring one because there's plenty of others to look through. And one thing that I would really recommend, maybe go to one, go to a Stellafane first before you do this, or maybe go to a couple and then get a copy of this wonderful book by Bert Willard um, about, it's a biography of Russell Porter, who's the founder of Stellafane back in the 1920s. And it gives you the whole early history of Stellafane, and it really adds a lot of color and a lot of meaning to the event to, to learn this early history. And, and as Phil said, you're walking in, in the footsteps of giants, and, and this book really drives that point home because you're reading about, you know, these, and it was a grassroots movement, which makes it so fascinating. You know, people working at Jones and Lamson, you know, it was a high-tech industry up in Springfield, Vermont. And out of that grew this amateur telescope making movement uh, during the years before World War II. And, and it just continues to this day. And it just captured the imagination of the country. And it's just so, so fascinating um, to experience that. So, you know, drive around Springfield, Vermont, go to the Hartness House, uh, the turret telescope down there, the former governor's mansion, who was one of Russell Porter's friends, James Hartness. Uh, governor of Vermont. And, you know, there, there's a, a lot of interesting context that you know, allows you to appreciate Stellafane even more, but yeah. especially Bert's book, Bert Willard's book. Bert, you know, Bert's I had been book is a, it's Stellafane a, it's a, for quite a few years before I read it. When I read that book, I mean, the, the, my love for Stellafane, as much as it was, increased even more after reading that background and becoming more intimate with the history of it. And, and you're, you're right about that. Bert's book is, is excellent. Uh, the insights in it, Porter, Porter was such an interesting man and, and he did so much in his life, you know, with trips to the Arctic and, and the work he did on the 200 inch telescope and his drawings, just amazing stuff. And it really is an excellent read. 
Um, but one of the things that, that you, you kind of touched on something, Richard, and I'm going to go to you first with this question, is in the 50 conventions or the 50 years that you've been up there, um, there's been advances and changes in, in telescope making in the, in, in, and amateur astronomy in itself. And a lot of it has come out right at Stellafan. It was where we first saw it. And I'm going to give one quick example. My very first convention, 1981, uh, I had set up, I, I had a scope, a homemade scope that I made. It was a six-inch F4 reflector. And I set up right next to Steve Dotson and that giant, looked like a clown cannon, but it was a 22-inch Dobsonian with a mirror actually made by John Dobson. And uh, that day or that evening when they were doing the optical judging, Al Nagler came over to me and said, try this eyepiece. He says, I, I have this company and, and this is a prototype. And it was a prototype of the Nagler Type 1. It was a 7-millimeter eyepiece. And I was a 15-year-old kid and didn't really know enough about what I was looking at. And I was like, oh, I have this Kellner I really like. But uh, I tried it and I was like, oh, wow. Well, that's, that's really nice and clean and crisp. So that was my personal uh, one was was trying out a, a Nagler eyepiece before they were available to the public. So, uh, Richard, do you want to talk about some uh, technologies or changes in telescopes and telescope making that came out from what you've seen there? Well, ha having been to um, 50 Stellafanes now, and especially when I look back on my slides, it, it's... Uh, you know, it just jumps right out is, is of course, the Dobsonian revolution, um, where when I first started going, I mean, if somebody had an 8 or a 12-inch telescope, I mean, that was a big telescope, you know, 12-inch reflector, and then Roger Tuthill would come up with a 20-inch reflector, and, you know, and everybody would be crowding around it, taking hundreds of pictures of this wonder, and now they're commonplace, uh, thanks to... Um, John Dobson, who promoted the design of, of making a telescope, large telescopes uh, accessible to people that, that, that aren't skilled machinists. But, but in, in the early days, I mean, it was mostly, you know, equatorially mounted, um, smaller reflectors and some refractors. But, but there's been a number of revolutions. I mean, there's the Dobsonian revolution, uh, I, mean, I guess the uh, early 80s, mid 80s, I guess. And before that, there was the Maksudov revolution um, in the 1950s and 60s, where at Stellafane, um, it was a focal point of, of people making Maksudov telescopes, which was a leap in, in, in um, technology for, for amateur astronomers to make a telescope that has a meniscus or a corrector plate, as well as a mirror. Um, and it was a, a technical more technical type of telescope, more difficult to manufacture, but amateurs were up up for the task. And and Stellafane saw some, you know, some of the first Maksudov telescopes, and they actually had a club up there that I was a member of during the final few years of its existence in the 70s called the Maksudov Club that Alan McIntosh used to run. Um, on Saturday afternoon, they'd have a meeting and people making Maksudov telescopes uh, would do presentations and show their instruments. And, uh, and so there was that revolution that amateurs can do more than just common Newtonian telescopes. They can make complicated designs. 
And then the Dobsonian revolution enabled people like myself who lacked the machining skills and the, and the facilities to make, um, you know, fancy equatorially mounted telescopes can make one out of plywood and sonotube and, and maybe buy a mirror and install it or grind, grind your own mirror. But it, it made a telescope making more accessible to the average amateur astronomer. And then, of course, um, the digital revolution. And, and that's more of a, a revolution in, in imaging uh, where it's it's just incredible. You look back at books like the one I by uh, George Keane, and you know you see these beautiful pictures. At the time, they were remarkable, and, and now I mean you can hold your cell phone up to your eyepiece and, and and get better pictures. You know the evolution of technology, I guess, has been the most the most uh, vividly apparent thing from having gone to so many stellophanes is that evolution of technology and technology's application to astronomy and telescope making. And how about you, Phil? I know you're, you're pretty in tune with, with uh, the marketplace as far as that's concerned. So. Well, you know, the, the, my first, again, my first convention, 1969, again, to mention Walter Scott Houston, he, he set up a solar observatory, okay, which projected an image of the sun onto a, a, uh, the rear of a, of a screen that you could see in this what looked like a shed. And I thought that was just an astonishing idea that he could set this up uh, for a weekend and you ended up with an image of the sun that had to be 20 inches in diameter on this rear projection screen. I thought that right there, okay, it's fairly basic technology, at least by today's standards, obviously. But still, that showed the ingenuity of the amateur telescope maker. And again, I was was a 13-year-old kid and my jaw just hit the ground seeing this sort of thing. I also remember Wayne, Steve Dotson's scope. If I remember, it had mag, mag wheel rims for the, for the yeah, that, that was quite, and, and a robin egg blue uh, tube and so forth. Yeah, that was, that was a very interesting color scheme. But I remember that to say, I don't remember your six-inch F4 right next to it, but I remember that thing because it's in my pictures, uh, certainly. But um, Rich mentioned, you know, he, he gave a good, very good capsule summary of the changes we've seen. How, if you look at the pictures that we took back in the 1970s, everything was a German equatorial mount. Every now and then you get a York, a yoke mount, maybe, or something like that. But it was all German equatorial mounts. Now you take a look, uh, going into the 80s and the 90s, and all you saw were daubs all over the place. Okay, first a very basic daub, such as um, uh, Dobson himself would promote. Then the fancier ones that have the you know the sort of a second generation based on Dave Kriege's obsession design and, and so forth. And they're becoming more and more prevalent as well. But you're also going kind of back to the future with the digital rev- revolution that Rich mentioned, because now you have all this go-to stuff that not just on Dobsonians that can now go to whatever you want to do, but again, we're going back to equatorial mounts nowadays as well. And we're seeing more and more of them crop up on, uh, at the summit as well. So it's kind of interesting. You can see, for instance, that the 1960s was certainly the decade of the um, Newtonian reflector. And then you mentioned the, the Maksudovs also. In 1958, John Gregory bought the first Gregory Maksudov up to Stellafane. And that was sort of the genesis for the more modern-day uh, Questar and the ETXs and so forth, which was his basic design, the idea you could luminize part of the corrector plate uh, to turn that into the, into the secondary mirror. Um, 
so we, we saw that phase, but we always go through these phases, or at least so it seems. And and nowadays, though, I don't know, my opinion, you don't see any one specific trend. Like you see everybody had this or everybody had that on display. Now you're seeing a, a mixture of things. Like it was how many years ago they brought the um, the, the two clones of uh, the uh, the Clark refractor. It was astonishing, astonishing. Things like that you're seeing. So while, yeah, you are seeing a certain prevalence of some designs, but there's so many unique things being brought up to Stellafane now that you never know what you're going to get at the next convention. I'm Nowadays, I'm more into the antique telescopes. You know, I find those fascinating, maybe because I'm more of an antique myself now, so I can relate to it. But um, they're just astonishing, some of the things that people be, bring up there now that have been um, resurrected and, and so refurbished and so forth. So I, I just enjoy the heck out of every year because you never know what you're going to find up on the summit. Dennis, do you have, have anything? Well, Rich and Phil went through my list. I'm going to, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we all agree, by the way, on the same things. The only uh, thing I'd like to mention is uh, that was touched upon is the amazing changes in uh, digital cameras and photography. In the old days, uh, I did it with film and you had to push the film and you had to gas the film and we tried every trick to get more light to add up on that film. And now you have these beautiful CCD detectors, not only in um, de dedicated cameras, but cell phones and whatever. Uh, that can do this for you with the uh, assistance of computers. And Wayne, you're a person that I've watched grow over the years, and you're doing amazing work these days with your telescope in your backyard with light pollution. And that's always shocking to me what you do. Um, the one thing I do remember is uh, someone mentioned Al Nagler. He brought up a photo multiplier, a next generation photo multiplier that you could connect to the eyepiece of your telescope. And he also made one that you didn't have to use a telescope. So we're in the field and he says, here, take this and look through it. There's no magnification. And I looked up and for those of you who are astronomers, I saw the North American nebula with my eyes as if it was a photograph. So that's, that's, the last spectacular thing, but you guys all hit the, the nail on the head with all the new stuff. So I yield. <laughs> and thank you for your kind words, Dennis. I appreciate that. Cause you, I, I saw some of your early work and it, it was really impressive. Um, thank you. So one, one of the things I want to touch on now is, um, are there any past or any particular speakers, uh, presentations, uh, or anything that stood out as highlights from past conventions? The favorite of mine was astronaut Alan Bean, not only because he uh, walked on the moon, but his temperament and his attitude was wonderful. And he got up on that stage and people just kept quiet and listen to this man talk for 45 minutes, which seemed like uh, 25 minutes. He's one spectacular. Again, I love the meteorite men because they, they did a great show up there. And uh, 
Another one that I have to mention quick, I don't want to steal ideas from other people, but I think I, I enjoyed Alan Stern, who was a, the lead um, scientist on the New Horizons Pluto mission. Uh, he was from NASA, and he came up. In fact, uh, the, the second time he was there, it was raining, and he did a phenomenal um, program. And what I really enjoyed about these three speakers were they did a lot of focusing on, on the kids, on the younger people. Uh, Alan Stern especially, uh, calling all the little kids up and, uh, and having, ha giving them little prizes special and asking them what they wanted to do. And I think the three speakers I mentioned certainly went out of their way to, to mention, mention the young people as well so that they they knew they had a, an out. Uh, uh, in fact, at the end of Alan Bean's program, I think he had made some comment about that. Now, those were his final words. How about you, Richard? One, uh, of, of course, um, as Dennis mentioned, uh, meeting a, a human being that walked on another celestial object, I mean, is, just blew me away. I mean, I, I had met Alan Bean twice in my lifetime, and both times were just incredible. I mean, what a what a privilege to meet somebody from that select group of individuals that walked on the moon. I'll, I'll never forget that program at the Hartness House and just having a chance to chat with them. And uh, I'll never forget one thing he mentioned about during, during the trip to the moon when they're sailing between the earth and the moon in, in the uh, command module. And he said he looked at the window of the ca uh, space capsule and in thought to himself on the other side of that piece of glass is instant death. I mean, the, the, the risk that they took in a pure vacuum traveling to the moon and, and you know, those were the heroes of our age, in my opinion. Um, and it was such a, such a thrill to meet him. And also um, earlier than that, 1988, Clyde Tombaugh, um, the discoverer of Pluto, that was pretty exciting to meet him at Stellafane and uh, hear him describe uh, searching all the photographic plates for a moving point of light and the excitement of you know, realizing that he had found a new planet. Unbelievable. And, and one person that, that I really enjoyed meeting, I, I don't recall if he ever gave a talk, but he, in 1972, a man named Norman James, who died recently, a couple of years ago, brought this, one of the most remarkable telescopes I've ever seen, a sphere-mounted Newtonian, this futuristic design where it ran on a, a film of water. And he designed this telescope and I took pictures of it and I said, what a, an amazing instrument. And, you know, I chatted with him up there, but then I never saw him again, never spoke to him again. But more recently, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, I accidentally crossed paths with him on Facebook and I sent him some pictures that I had taken of, of him back in, in 1972. I mean, that's, <laughs> and he was pretty excited about seeing them and, you know, the, me, me uh, still remembering that amazing telescope. And it turns out that he, he was one of the designers of the GM Firebird 3 automobile. He also helped design the, the lunar rover. I mean, it just shows you the, the caliber of people that you might bump into on Breezy Hill. Um, and we became friends 
and he sent me off pictures of other sphere-mounted telescopes and different designs and schematics and everything. And, and, and it was because I crossed paths with them at Stellafane and then managed to reconnect with them later on. So, again, I'm not sure if he ever, he might have spoken up there, but it was mainly uh, chatting with him um, among the telescopes in front of the pink clubhouse. And, and Phil, how about you, a memorable speaker? Or, just, or? just to mention Norman James again, you're right, his, his spherical Newtonian was also the genesis for Edmund's AstroScan. Right, so that was uh, they they kind of grabbed that design and ran with that ball, but uh, also the portable um, Newtonian from the 1990s, with Peter Smitka, I think the name was the owner of the company. He also ran with that design as well. Uh, but in any case, now as far as speakers go, um, one that that struck me, and this goes back now years, was uh, Ben Mayer. He actually gave two Twilight talks up there, two two keynote talks up there. Uh, separated by a couple of years. And both of those talks I found were very meaningful to me personally because he had some, he had a, a, a gizmo back then called the Problecom. If, if you're, and again, I'm dating myself by even talking about it, right? Problecom. <laughs> but um, I remember, I think it may have been his second keynote talk. He became very emotional uh, during the presentation because apparently his son had died in a car accident not long before that presentation. And uh, that certainly reflected his uh, in his tone and so forth. And it, it was a very, very moving presentation that he gave both times, but especially that, the, I think it was the second time he talked about his son, loss of his son. Um, another uh, great speaker, well, he mentioned Clyde Tombaugh already, so I can't, I can't grab that one. I thought David Sobel just recently did a very good talk. But we've heard, Rich and I have heard her several times and she always does a tr tremendous presentation. David does, so um, uh, I thought that was wonderful. And 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 I I must say, although I'm not high on the list, but I was honored to give the keynote talk at Stella Fame back in 1996, I think it was, and that was the honor of my lifetime. Now, I, I can't tell you uh, what that meant to be standing in in that, and it was nice and clear. And I gave a, a presentation called the story of Stella Fame. I traced the history of the place. And uh, that was just so meaningful for me. Maybe it wasn't for the audience, but it was for me. Because, to, to again, I'm standing in, in the shadow of giants doing this. And uh, that was just one of the most, most amazing experiences in my, in my life, uh, just doing that. But uh, So there have been lots of wonderful speakers there. I get the 1996 was kind of a short year, but um, uh, off year maybe. But uh, I know this year, Joe DeRayo is going to do a phenomenal job. Because like you said, Wayne, before, he, he's a storyteller, and that engages the audience. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to Joe's presentation this, this year, probably more than, you know, many past years. So I, I know he's going to do a wonderful job. And we can only hope it's going to be cloudy so we don't have to leave and look at the sky. So we can sit there and listen to Joe's entire presentation. It's funny when there's a really good speaker and it is clear you, you hear the oohs and ahs as, as something, a satellite or the ISS or a meteor goes over. Um, but uh, before I get to the, the and I'm going to make this the last question, I, I do have to, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just tell you a real quick story. John Dobson's come up a lot uh, in this. And I didn't find out about this until after John died. But my sister-in-law, my, my oldest brother's wife, and they've been married for oh, over 40 years now, 40, close to 45 years. 
Um, she's John Dobson's first cousin. And her name, her first name is Lowry. And John Dobson's middle name is Lowry. It's a family name. And never made the connection. Now, my brother and his wife were, were worked in the uh, worked for the State Department. They lived all over the world. Uh, but it didn't come out until after he had died. And she told me a story about uh, in the 1960s, visiting him in San Francisco and going for a walk. And uh, her mother was there and, and the whole thing. And I guess I think they had they, they shared a set of grandparents. That was the uh, the connection. So I had that that connection. I never knew about it. <laughs> um, so the getting into to to sort of the end here. Um, looking ahead, what do you envision uh, that the future of cellophane is going to be? You know, what kind of changes or developments do you think are, are going to happen in the coming years? As far as as new developments are concerned, um, I know that uh, the club itself. Um, Wayne, you know this as well. We're constantly working on upgrades to the facility. So now we have uh, optical cables uh, sending our webcams. So they're very stable now. And you can go on the website and go to the webcams and see Stella Fane 24-7 uh, if you wish. And uh, there, we're also doing a lot of a refurbishing of the buildings. Uh, the pink clubhouse uh, has had some damage, so we uh, made some improvements on the roof last year, and this year we're going to be replacing a rear window, and uh, Ken and the boys have replaced uh, a significant amount of the clapboard at the back. So my perspective is slightly different because I'm a member of the Springfield Telescope Makers, and so are you, Wayne. So I see things from the perspective of we do a phenomenal amount of work maintaining the buildings, especially uh, the historical buildings. And one of the things that uh, comes up when you want to replace a window is uh, you're going to follow the construction techniques used from the time the building was built in the early 1920s. So. And, and we're not going to use vinyl windows because they didn't exist. So we're going to continue to have to paint it. So my perspective for the future of Stellafane for me is uh, maintaining it and improving the infrastructure of it. As far as other things are concerned, um, I don't really think we're going to make it any bigger because honestly, I think we have enough room now for everybody uh, to get there and be able to camp and whatnot. Um, and I just see uh, improvements in the in infrastructure and the buildings. For Phil and Richard, I want to change the, the question slightly. And uh, I just want to add in there, are there any changes or developments that you'd like to see at Stellafane yeah. in the coming years? Well, one thing I, I really like about Stellafane is the fact that the, the folks at Stelfane like to honor the people that came before us, the people whose footsteps we're walking in, the luminaries from the past, Russell Porter and, and, and others um, who have either helped make Stelfane happen every year or who have visited Stelfane. And, and, um, and I like that. And I hopefully that'll continue. I've always 
thought it'd be nice to have a Stellafane Hall of Fame or something, you know, where you honor people like um, Scotty Houston and Roger Tudhill and different folks um, from over the years who have made lasting contributions to amateur astronomy and to Stellafane itself. Um, I think it's always going to be a, a place where people are going to see the cutting edge of amateur telescope making. Um, that's where you would go to see new innovations and, and on display. And I think that will continue. And I think an important uh, thing about Stellafane is the inspiration that it provides for young people. And there's been a, a, a huge effort to, to, to do even more of that in recent years um, with children's programs and children's uh, telescope making categories for um, young people and junior awards and all that. Um, to inspire the next generation of hobbyists in this field and, and to keep it alive. But one of the challenges, I think, is, is um, something that all astronomy organizations and especially clubs uh, have to deal with, and that's societal evolution as it relates to the digital age and people's changing interests and uh, values um, about things from the past. A lot of clubs have... Uh, had their memberships diminish and even gone out of existence um, with competition from digital technology and, and just a, a sort of a lack of interest in the old ways of doing things as a, you know relating to astronomy clubs. But but I think Stellafane is always going to attract a lot of people because it's not. I mean, there is, it is being run by the Springfield Telescope Makers, but the event itself is. is is such an amazing activity and that's what i think people want is it's not just sitting at meetings and voting and robert's rules of order and electing officers and different things they want to do things they want to interact with the heavens they want activities and that's what stellafane's all about so i think whereas other organizations and clubs will will have challenges in the digital age i think stellafane will be pretty successful uh, they've, they've come up with a good recipe and uh, obviously things have to evolve but i i'm i'm pretty uh certain that you know stellafane will live on for many many more years it will certainly outlive me bill what would you how would you like to see uh, what would you like to see happen so, in the future sort of itself? sort of um um expanding on rich's idea the the program has become so much richer than it was when I first went there. You know, when I first went there, you had evening talks on Friday, and you had two or three, four super technical talks on Saturday afternoon. And then you had, you know, the welcome by Governor Joseph Johnson, and you had Scotty Houston's Shadowgram, and you had the uh, awards and so on, and then you had the keynote speaker. And that was pretty much about it, right? Whereas now the program is, is just so encompassing. You know, it's so much more welcoming than it was. That was the one thing that I don't want to say it turned me off, but didn't really grab me uh, back when I was a teenager into my early 20s, the technical nature of the presentations. Whereas now you have beginner level, intermediate level, advanced level, and you have programs for children, and you have obs the observing Olympics, or my personal favorite, the binocular observing Olympics. Um, which I sent in the final list of them to Eileen Meyer this morning. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just wonderful to see it evolve to this. And I, and I credit the folks at the STM 
for expanding their horizon tremendously with the program. And I think that's made Stelfane uh, a much more, uh, a much richer experience for those who go there, whether or not it's your first or your 51st, it's a much richer experience for us all because now we have so many options of things to do. Used to be, yeah, you sat around Saturday afternoon, and now what do I do? I don't know, it's awfully hot. You know, you didn't really have much. Now there's always something to do. Whether or not it's in the pavilion, whether or not it's it's in the uh, library at the McGregor Observatory or or some other venue, there's always something to do for everybody. And I think the STM really needs to be congratulated for that. And whether or not they'll expand it, I don't know, because I think right now it's almost to the to the point of exploding. But it's it's just a right. But it's it's a wonderful uh, uh, enriching experience the entire weekend, starting on Thursday, even though there's no technically no program. But it's such a, a wonderfully enriching experience for everybody who goes. I, I think the club should be really congratulated for for doing this. Uh, good, good job. Look at that. I mean, amateur astronomy as a whole owes owes the Springfield Telescope makers a huge debt of gratitude for. Uh, you know, we go up there and have a great weekend, but a lot of people don't appreciate the amount of work that goes into, you know, maintaining a, a property that big and, and running such a huge event year after year. And, and so I'm sure it's a labor of love for folks like Dennis and others who go up there early and get everything ready and, and st stay at the gate and make sure people are introduced properly and keep all the projectors running. And, and you know, I, I echoes phil's thank you to them uh it's surely appreciated by thousands and thousands of people and 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 all i can say is to those folks that do it every year you've changed a lot of lives and you've changed the world in a good way what you're doing uh, doesn't go unnoticed and it's having a profound difference in the world i think i think it's it's certainly changed a lot of people's lives uh and certainly had an impact on people's lives. I mean, I got married up there, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly had an impact on my life. You know, you talk about the Springfield telescope makers, but uh, we have two people with us today, uh, Richard Sanderson and Phil Harrington, who do programs every single year. Phil, how many programs have you done at Stellafane? Oh, I don't know. My first was in the 1980s on binoculars under the tent. In the afternoon and you couldn't see one slide i was showing because the tent had no slides no slides to it i remember saying to the audience well here's a, a picture of m31 let's talk about what you can see in the sky and say maybe you want to use averted vision to see to see the slide because i'm not seeing anything either and uh but i've i've given lots including this year i'm supposed to give one too which is very nice and richard how many have you done i i haven't kept track of them maybe a dozen or 15 i don't know but uh but it's it's been a, an honor you know stellafane has given so much to me it's an honor to give back in some little way and and it's uh it's it's one of the highlights of the weekend to get up in front of the audience and and do a presentation and and i, I enjoy doing it every year and keep on doing it as long as i can <laughs> and, and Dennis, you've done you and you and Kim do the beginner presentations, and you've been doing that for a long time now. Oh yeah, a long, long time. <laughs> Too long to even want to mention. Uh, and but continuing on with that, Wayne, uh, the programs that Richard does and the programs that Phil do, 
I, I like to think of them as family-friendly programs. You don't have to be uh, an astrophotographer or an astrophysicist to go in and listen to those programs on, on Saturday afternoon under the tent. The whole family can enjoy it. Hey, Wayne, I do want to mention two things, um, if I may. Uh, we're talking about uh, new technology. Uh, the Springfield Telescope Makers offers a mirror-making class, and I believe this year we had 15 people making mirrors. And I just want the audience to know that if they go to the website, uh, our new class will be starting. I'm not involved with that, but you don't have to be a member to take the class. So if there's anyone in the area that wants to make a good old telescope mirror, we have five or six experts that will guide you through that whole process. The other thing I didn't want to forget, Wayne, is this is our 100th year of the club. So there are many special events that are going to happen. If you were thinking about coming to Stellafane, this might be a real good year to, to come for the first time. We're even going to have people dressed up in period clothes and and all kinds of special activities and special things for the 100th anniversary of the club. It's not, not the 100th con convention, but the 100th anniversary of the first one. And, and you're right. It's going to be a, a, a really big deal and, and a lot of fun. And you mentioned the mirror class. And, you know, I remember when we started that back up in the, in the 1990s, um, and it was me and a few other people. I was not the, the, the main person, but I was involved with it. Um, but we had people, you know, we got people that were conventioneers or just people that were interested that came out and ended up becoming, joining the club and, and got more active. And we have, uh, we actually had somebody who was, a, a an attendee came to the convention and would fly in from Texas once a month to go to the mirror class. And that person's now a member of the club and was an officer. So uh it, it's it really has an impact it really has an impact so i want to thank the three of you really from the bottom of my heart because you're people that i i care about and look up to uh and appreciate all that you've done for the hobby uh and for stellafane and i think getting your input on this is really just it, it it means a lot and just to share the the love and the feelings that you have for uh the convention and for for the 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 grounds that are stellafane are huge so i want to thank you very much for spending the time today to do this well thank you for having us it was a pleasure to talk about something that we love so much yeah it's an honor to be connected to to stellafane for so many years now and to become part of the the program is is an honor that i could not have imagined during my first couple of conventions and, I, and an honor that i don't take lightly and likewise wayne i think it's an honor that you asked me to be involved with this uh, uh, group and group discussion as well. So thank you very much for the invitation. Well, that was an absolute blast, wasn't it? So remember, if you want information about Stellafane, go to their website, stellafane.org. And remember to go on Facebook, go to the Stellafane Memories group on Facebook. There's a lot of fun things there, a lot of great history, uh, and a lot of great information about the convention. So please check it out. Well, that's all for this episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope that you found our time together to be fun and helpful. If you have questions or episode suggestions, please email us at astroguypodcast at gmail.com or leave us a text or a voicemail message 
at 973-404-0380. Please join the Astro Guy podcast group on Facebook. You'll find other members, videos, blogs, and lots of other useful information there for your enjoyment. You can also visit our YouTube channel, The Astro Guy Podcast, for past episodes and other surprises. Please subscribe. Please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform. It helps us to get new listeners. Thank you again for listening, and may your skies be clear. As always, Carpe Noctum. Seize the night. I'm Wayne Zool, and this was the Astro Guy Podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, your questions, comments, and suggestions are welcome. Keep wondering. Keep your eyes on the sky. Have fun. Carpe Noctum. Seize the night.